through all of this, we see the church growing in strength and stamina and ability. I'm not sure that they even realized what was happening at the time. But by 1893, when the book ends, they well understand because they're able to look back and see how, wow, in the course of all of this, we have dedicated four temples. So I think that this is a lesson for all of us in our own lives that when things look the bleakest, there's actually work that the Lord is doing in our lives and that we should never lose hope. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. And today we're going to be talking about the volume two conclusion, the conclusion of the book, the conclusion of the podcast. And we're so excited to welcome our guests with us today. We have in the studio with us the managing historian for the Saints Project, Jed Woodworth, and the lead writer and literary editor for Saints Volume Two, Scott Hales. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this is a little trip down memory lane, really, because at this point, Saints Volume 2, we've concluded the book in our last episode, and this is our last episode of the podcast for Season 2, the 46th episode, in fact, for this season. We're super excited to have you here with us. Let's talk about what Saints Volume 2 meant for each of you. Can you start off and tell us maybe who some of your favorite characters were the favorite people that you got a chance to write about and learn about in this volume? That's a hard question to answer because there are so many favorite characters. And it really depends partly, I think, on the season of our lives when we're working on those particular characters. So one of the characters that I loved studying and working on was Susan Young Gates, Brigham Young's daughter. Yeah, it was neat to watch her grow up in this book, right? We met her as a little girl at the Lion House and then we got to experience her whole maturing and becoming a woman and a, and a mother. And That's right. And what's interesting to me about her is that she defies expectation. So as the daughter of Brigham Young, one might think that she is a blue blood cast and that her life just sails through cleanly. But she has all sorts of struggles. And it begins with trying to figure out who she is in this large household in the Beehive House where she is one of dozens of siblings. And her identity is in question at times. And she has to work through that. And then later, she ends up marrying a man who doesn't treat her well. And she's a very young woman at the time that she ends up divorcing him, has two children, and then her father dies. And so she has to figure out, what do I do with my life? And who am I? What can I give to the kingdom? And so volume two really works out many of those stories. And then, of course, the story will continue in volume three. And what's incredible about her story specifically is that it's so relatable to people today. I think that story is going to really resonate with a lot of people, especially women who are single parents or who have gone through divorces and things like that. I totally remember the first time I read the chapter where Sousa is getting ready to go on the mission with her husband. She's at the train station and her ex-husband shows up and takes their son. And I was just devastated. I mean, I was literally just well, the listeners will remember in the episode, but like I was so frustrated and it was just awesome to get to meet her and go through her struggles with her. So Scott, what about you? Who are some of your favorite people? When I think about this, I mean, there are so many different people in this book that I love and connected with. But I think 
what was really important to me when we finished writing volume one was that we complete the story of Addison and Louisa Pratt. I was one who, as I read the Pratt story, I was just deeply moved by their faith. And I thought, how terrible would it be if we just left this family separated here at the end of volume one? And so it was really important that we went back and told the story about Addison's return, the reunion as a family, talked about the immense sacrifice that both of them made to take the gospel to the people of the Pacific. What I think is interesting, it's in many ways like Susie Young Gates. They had a difficult life. Life did not always go as planned. The later story after they come home to Utah, it's not ideal. They do end up separated. But what I think is great is that they both held on to their faith and they passed that faith down. And we see that in the story of Ida Hunt Udall, their granddaughter, who we also feature in the book. And we see the influence that her grandparents had on her and the choices she made. And so I think I'm really excited for saints today to read about the Pratts and to learn from their sacrifice and their faith and really just benefit from their great example. I'm interested to know from the two of you, what did you learn as you wrote the book that you didn't know before? You know, we often think of the Joseph Smith era as an era of just an outpouring of revelation to the saints. And I think there's this misconception that that ended to a certain degree with the death of Joseph Smith. But what I found time and again, you know, reading the letters of Brigham Young or the journals of saints like Wilfred Woodruff and others, studying about the manifesto and other really major events during this era is that revelation continued, that the Lord was still leading the saints, that they were still receiving communication from him, perhaps not in ways as dramatic as we see in volume one, but in ways that I think are more relatable to us today. You know, Wilfred Woodruff would often talk about inspiration being the same thing as revelation. When we talk about inspiration, it's the same as revelation. And I think that's much more relatable for us today because I think all of us are very confident in saying that, yeah, we receive inspiration from God. But sometimes we're a bit hesitant with the word revelation because we think of it as such a big outpouring of has to be like a pillar of light. Yeah, and I I don't think that's necessarily what it is. And I think that's one of the lessons that we see in volume two is we see the way the Lord gently guides the saints through this journey. What about you, Jed? The Book of Mormon uses a phrase, the power of deliverance. And what impressed me as I worked through the content of volume two was just how much of a struggle it was for the saints to get to where the Lord wanted them to be. They had to overcome many, many different obstacles. They struggled with finding food to eat when they first arrived in the valley. And then within just a few years, they had a famine. They constantly struggled with government officials who were not partial to their religion. There was backsliding constantly throughout this period, as there always is in human history. Then ultimately in the 1880s, we have a concerted effort to stamp out the faith of the saints as they understood it at that time through a federal raid. And through all of this, we see the church growing in strength and stamina and ability I'm not sure that they even realized what was happening at the time. There were more process comments about what the Lord is doing in the 1880s as they were trying to make sense of this massive persecution. And so they were starting to develop a theology of adversity and how the Lord was trying them and testing them. But by 1893, when the book ends, they well understand because they're able to look back and see how wow, in the course of all of this, we have dedicated four temples. That's an immense achievement. And especially back to the 1880s, they were able to dedicate temples in Logan and Manti, Utah. There was no other decade when they did that 
And this was really the hardest decade that they had experienced. So I think that this is a lesson for all of us in our own lives that when things look the bleakest, there's actually work that the Lord is doing in our lives and that we should never lose hope. And we should remember that the Lord is with us, especially because we have made covenants with him and he will not abandon those covenants. We may fall short, but we come back and he will honor his covenants with us. What do people talk to you about who have read the book and maybe had questions or just comments? I'm curious to see what your experience has been. I've talked to a few people about it who have read chapters. And one of the first things that they say to me is that they had no idea that some saints came west by ship. And so I think what's kind of neat about volume two, and I think what people appreciate about it, is that it is filling in some of the gaps in their historical knowledge. I think most church members know the basic story that we told in volume one. They knew that before reading that volume. But with this one, they're really going into uncharted territory. So things like the voyage of the Brooklyn just changes their understanding of what happened in the gathering, or even just telling stories about what was involved in getting the saints west, how big of an endeavor that was. I think sometimes we have this image in our mind of Brigham Young leading this mass exodus across the desert, kind of one large group, not unlike what Moses did maybe. And that's really not the case that the saints came step by step and in smaller companies. And so I think one of the great things that this volume is doing and one of the things I think people are responding to is how it's helping them better understand their story as Latter-day Saints and what got the saints out here to Utah and how this place came to be as we know it today. What's some of the feedback you've heard, Jed? Well, I think a lot of it resembles feedback we got with volume one, namely that there are stories that the saints had never heard before that are now a part of our vernacular because of saints. So, for example, I think we knew that we went down to Hawaii and that the gospel flourished there in the 1850s and 1860s. But I don't think that the saints knew very much about the assistance that were provided by indigenous people in helping to see this happen. So, for example, we knew that George Cannon trans translated the Book of Mormon into Hawaiian. But the saints didn't know that Jonathan Nampella, a native Hawaiian, assisted him in that translation and that they were working together on it steadily day after day. By the same token, Walter Gibson, who's one of the villains in the book, really creates a lot of problems in the 1860s for the Hawaiian church. And so we don't shy away from some of those stories that are difficult. We also narrate the Mountain Meadows Massacre, which the saints knew about. I think we all know that that's one of our greatest tragedy. Actually, it is the greatest tragedy of our history. However, saints tells a story in an entire chapter. So there's more detail about stories that we thought we knew, but there's greater diversity of characters in other stories as well. And it just gives incredible context to these events. I really appreciated learning that. And a lot of the times it's from the perspective of these individuals. And that was a really powerful way to learn more. I like how you mentioned both Mountain Meadows and Hawaii. You know, it's interesting to me. I have friends who live in southern Utah, and they're very familiar with the Mountain Meadows story because it's kind of in their geography. I had a sister missionary who read Saints Volume 2, and she did her mission in Hawaii. The first thing she wanted to know was, are you talking about the Napellas, and are you going to actually talk about Walter Gibson? Because she'd become very familiar with that story. And I just love how Saints Volume 2 has unearthed these stories that little geographies around the church knew and were important to them. But now as a whole church, we get to understand them a little bit better, and they become part of our whole story, the, the main story of the history of the church. Could I speak to that? Please. 
So I think in the past, we've been used to telling our story as a series of triumphs, which, as I said a few moments ago, is the largest sense. It is a series of triumphs. But we've kind of lopped off the stories that are unsettling to us that don't fit neatly within that story of triumph. And one of them is Walter Gibson, but there are many others. And I think we've now reached a point in our history, and I will call it a maturing, where we can assimilate these stories that are difficult, that are troubling, and we can learn from them. This is the way sacred history works. It actually incorporates difficult narrative. So we see it in the Book of Mormon, where how much war is there? How much unfaithfulness is there? We see it all over the Old Testament, where you have David, for example, who commits a heinous crime, is still given a pride of place in Israelite history. And so I think we need these stories, these difficult stories. We need to learn from them. So I'm glad you mentioned that, Jed, because there are things that we aren't able to cover, even though we don't shy away from the difficult, but there are topics our listeners will know that I mentioned many times, the church history topics, where you can go to learn more about the people and events and other topics that are found that we couldn't cover in full depth in the book. What are some of the things that you wish you could have dealt with more in the body of the book or that you hope people will go on to learn more about? Well, that's funny because the Saints books are big books. Volume 2 is longer than Volume 1. I think it's around 700 pages. And you would think that with 700 pages, you'd be able to cover a lot. But really, as I write the book, the more surprised I am about how constrained I feel with what we can keep in and what we have to leave out just as a matter of space. We don't have the space for it. And I think one of the things that comes to mind is just the the enormous amount of missionary work that happened at this time. In 1852, as we tell in the book, Brigham Young, the first presidency, sends missionaries out throughout the world. And they go to all these far-flung places. They go to uh, Hong Kong. They're in South Africa, as we tell in the book. I believe they go to Thailand. I mean, they're just all over the world. India. And we're not able to... Yeah, we're not able to tell all these stories. They're just all over the place. And unfortunately, we don't have the space for it. And so uh, we talk about Scandinavia. We talk about South Africa. We talk about Hawaii and other places in the South Pacific. But we're just not able to cover everything. And fortunately, we do have the great global histories project that the department is doing right now where you can go onto the Gospel Library app and you can read about the individual countries and learn stories about when the missionaries first arrived in this country or that. And I think that's one of the things that I would encourage readers to do is don't just be content with the narrative, go and read the global histories stories. There are stories written much in the same style as saints about some of these early missionary efforts, Uh, or go to the church history topics if you have questions about issues that we're not able to cover in depth in the book. Take a look at these topics and learn more. I think one of the things we want people to do is use saints as a springboard into greater knowledge about our global church history. And we have plenty of resources to help saints to do that. Let me tell you a story you may find interesting. Early on, we had a draft of the first quarter of volume two, where these missionaries of which Scott speaks were featured quite prominently, fanning out to all the world. And then many of them come together in 1856. They're called home and they lead the handcart pioneers to the valley. And as I looked at this draft, I felt like it was a red herring to follow these missionaries, primarily because the fruits of their labors was not very large. And I noticed that we did not have a Danish story. Now, this is a huge omission. Anyone who knows about this period in the early 1850s, you know that 
the Danish mission begins in this period and probably one fourth of all of the saints who have longstanding pioneer ancestry have a Danish line. So I went to Scott and I said, we need to find a Danish character. And I volunteered to use a database that we have that really anyone listening to this podcast can access. It's called the Overland Trails Pioneer Database, where you can learn who is in each company. Then they actually reproduce accounts from the various people. And we knew the company where the first Danish immigrants came. It was in 1852. So I got the names of these folks and I saw who had written accounts. And then I went to our catalog at the Church History Library and I did a search for an hour or two. And I found that we had about 10 of these Danish pioneers who left longer accounts. And out of those, I gave Scott four choices. I narrowed it down to four and I said, here's what we have to work with. And Scott then chose a Danish family that ended up just doing incredible work for us in this volume. And Scott, maybe you can speak to what they were able to do for us. Yeah, and you talked about the Dorius family. And what's really fascinating about them is they were one of the earliest converts in Denmark. And they were basically a typical Danish family. But when they joined the church, the mother and father disagreed, ended up divorcing. The father joined the church. The mother left the family, really. And then the children themselves joined. And the three that we feature in the book are, are Johan, Carl, and Augusta. And Augusta came over first. And so we use Augusta to tell the story of the Danish immigration and the Danish settlement of San Pete Valley. Then the Dorius brothers, they serve missions in Denmark. They help take the gospel to Norway. And then they eventually all come back. They help us tell the handcart story. They help us just tell the settlement of, of San Pete Valley we learn about temple work through them because we find later that the family all emigrate. The mother eventually joins the church. I love that part of yeah, the story. That they, was so awesome. They uh, join the church and the family is ultimately sealed together in the temple. And they just turned out to be the perfect family for us to feature in this book because they get us to so many different places. And they really, for me, characterize what it meant to be a Latter-day Saint in this era. So it was just a, an amazing, amazing find. I loved that family. I felt they were incredibly relatable. I'll just add that I later learned that the Doriuses helped convert a man in Norway named Johan Andreas Jensen, who happens to be President Nelson's great-grandfather. Wow. Oh, wow. There's that too. Yeah. And I did not know that at the time that we decided to go with the Dorius family. So throughout the podcast, we've talked about how powerful it is to hear about individuals and hear the story of our history through them. But let's go back to the very beginning. What were you trying to accomplish when you were writing the book, especially related to the structure of the book? And then can you talk about the largest themes? What are those largest themes that we get from the book as well? The largest overarching problem of volume two involves really the wrenching story of how plural marriage, a principle that brought the saints west in order to have religious freedom, how that gets disseminated, how it gets lived out, and then ultimately why the saints give it up and how that happens. And so to tell that story, we also had to deal with the reality on the ground, which is 
that the saints are gathering tens of thousands of people to the valley. And so it's really the gathering and the story of plural marriage and the end of plural marriage. And, and this, of course, involves the temple. People come to the valley for the blessings of the temple, and ultimately plural marriage is given up for the temple. One of the principles of storytelling is that when you start a story and where you end a story, that matters. And ideally, you end a story having turned 180 degrees from where you were at the beginning. So what we see at the beginning of volume two is a displaced people. The saints are without a home. So it was really important for me to show how the saints found a home in the valley and to show them at the end of the book being an established people here. And so one of the things that we tried to do was show, first of all, what it meant to establish the kingdom of God here in the Intermountain West. What did it mean for them to establish Zion? But then also, what did it mean to bring people to the Zion? So I was really interested in the challenge of establishing Zion, but also the challenge of gathering the saints and incorporating them into the Zion that has been built here. And to make sure that by the end of this book, the saints had a home, a physical home, but also a spiritual home as well. And what Scott is saying is so important for the volume as a whole, because when the saints give up plural marriage, we had to already have in place this Zion society. We had to have an integrated Latter-day Saint culture that had been built up over time, such that when plural marriage went away, there was already something in place there that was left behind. I appreciate you both sharing that. As a reader, I can tell you one of the things that I learned most in Saints Volume 2 was understanding these two big themes you mentioned, plural marriage and the gathering. We never have, in the podcast or in the book, we're not advocating for plural marriage. But what we advocated for, I think, successfully was an understanding of the period. And people like Lorena Larson, I came away with an understanding of what it was like when plural marriage stopped, how hard that was. When Wilford Woodruff couldn't go to his own wife's funeral because he was in hiding, I came away understanding how hard it was during the underground period. I came away with a new sense of what it means to be a prisoner for conscience sake. And I have to admit, I'm pleased with the faith of those people to live the way that they lived until the Lord gave them new direction. I know you've both shared experiences with us off the air here about times when you felt particularly led or inspired as you work through this process to create this book. Can you share a few of those experiences? I think the experience that both Jed and I turn to or think about whenever anybody asks us this question, whenever they ask us, you know, in what ways do you feel uh, maybe the hand of God in this project or that you're being led to certain stories? I think, you know, going back to the Dorius family and our other Scandinavian saints, people like Anna Witso. One of the challenges that we encountered in this volume, which we did not encounter in, in volume one, is just a language barrier. You know, for the first time, we're really dealing with people who left documents in languages other than English. And what was challenging with someone like Anna Witso, for example, is that she wrote letters to her son, John, and there were other documents that we had about her, but they were all in this old Norwegian, I think it's called Dano-Norwegian, which is not a, a very common uh, language out there. It's not one that many people speak, and it's certainly not one you're learning in high school. We wanted to tell the story of Anna Witso. We wanted to know more about these Danish characters, but we just had no way of breaking that language barrier. And we, we talked to a number of people about translating them, but nobody really seemed to have the right expertise. And then one day I was talking with a friend of mine, a fellow scholar who I'd known for years, 
And uh, I just mentioned offhand, she does uh, Northern European studies. I just mentioned offhand that we had all of these documents written in this kind of old Norwegian. And she goes, well, I could read them. And I'm like, really? <laughs> How have I known you so long and don't know this? So anyway, I, I, I sent her some documents and she said, oh yeah, this is really easy to translate. And she sent us back some translations of Anna Witzow letters and Anna Witzow's character came to life. You've read the book now, so you know what role she plays at the end of the book. I mean, I really feel like my friend had been led to this project to help us out because otherwise we would not have had that great testimony that we have of Anna Witzow in the book or even the insights that John gives us through his letters as well. So that's one thing that I think both Jed and I turn to always when we think about the way God has directed this project. We knew that we needed to have a gathered saint be the perspective at the end of the book in the Salt Lake Temple. But who that was eluded us for many, many months. We had other characters in place that were American-born. And Anna Woodsell only emerged after Scott and the conversation that he had with his scholarly friend. But then I also, independent of Scott, had a breakthrough. I was looking for some more Witzow material from a descendant of John Witzow. And he happened to mention that he had a nephew who was working on a PhD in Scandinavian languages, who's obviously a Witzow. And I mentioned Dano-Norwegian, and he said, well, my nephew knows that language and can read it. And thinking that we already had our translation needs covered because I knew about Scott's breakthrough, I punted on this and I said, well, you know, have him call me, but I think we have our needs met. Well, this student called me and once again, I said, we don't need your help, but I really appreciate learning this. And I went home that weekend and I could not get this conversation off my mind. And I realized I had made a mistake. We did need him but I wasn't sure how. And so I followed up the next Monday and I called him and I said, I think we do need your help, but I'm not sure how. Let me give it some more thought. And I realized after talking with Scott that Scott's scholar friend could do the Anna translations, but we needed someone to do the John translations because John was writing to Anna in the same language, even as Anna was writing John. So I called up the Woodsow descendant and I said, can you do these John translations? I sent him the documents and he turned them around so rapidly and they were amazing translations. Now, of course, I can't follow up, but we have these two scholars now who are able to check up on each other. One thing that Jed hasn't mentioned is that we were under immense pressure to meet our deadlines. (laughs) Ben probably knows better about this than anyone, but we were under immense pressure. And so... When the second translator came on was just the right time for us to be able to get all the work done that we needed to to meet these deadlines. It, it was, was just, a we it were was a within two yeah. hours of sending a draft off to our advisors in the 12 when we got the translations back from the Witzow descendant and they revealed a fundamental error in our writing. It was writing. amazing, yeah. Wow. And we were able to incorporate those. Scott added the new information and we got the story right right before the volume went off to our advisors. And I get emotional when I think about this because the structure of deliverance that I already discussed for this period was being played out in our own writing. And I'm deeply grateful to our Father in Heaven for for helping us and helping us to uh, 
to get the story told in the right way. I think it's safe to say that the Lord wants his saints to know the story of the Witsos. Yeah. That's, I think that's clear to me. Thank you, too, for sharing that insight. It's really powerful for me, and I know it will be for the listeners who have been on this journey and followed this family and to know those additional insights. Thank you. We really appreciate that. So now looking ahead to Volume 3, we know we're going to get asked, when is Volume 3 going to be released? What can we talk about? Next week. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Originally, when we planned these volumes, the goal was to release one a year for four consecutive years. And we quickly learned as we got into it that that timeline was untenable, mainly because the review process is so extensive and it requires time to allow people to read. And then when we get their comments back, it takes time to incorporate those. And so this is a way of saying that the next volume will not come out next year, but we're hoping for the year after that. And then volume four, which is being written right now, hopefully another year and a half. So, so we're really looking at about a year and a half to two years apart. So you can do the math on that. And I would just invite our listeners, you can always go to saints.churchofjesuschrist.org and we'll keep you up to date there. There's a little FAQ where we will post updates and you can watch for chapters that will be coming out in volume three. Can you give us a little sneak peek? I know it's a ways out there, but what are some of the things our readers and listeners can look forward to in learning about in volume three? I think one of the things that readers will see is the evolution of the church from a tiny church in the American West looked upon with suspicion by outsiders, not fully understood by everyone. Kind of public opinion went from, from that to a church that is more global in scope, but also more respected by outsiders and better understood by outsiders. So we're gonna to try to show that trajectory of how the church evolved more to the church we know today, how it became more global. We'll be telling more stories about Europe. We'll show some of the challenges it faced in the early 20th century as the church is adapting to global communities. We'll talk about how the church coped with World War I and World War II, things like how the church coped with the Great Depression. We'll talk more about the church in Central and South America, the church in New Zealand. So we've talked about your favorite stories and favorite characters from the book. Do you guys have a favorite line from the book that you would want to talk about? There's an exchange in chapter 21 where the saints are building the Salt Lake Theater in Salt Lake, which is an interesting project to do in the middle of a civil war. You're trying to build a temple, but Brigham Young felt impressed that the saints needed a theater, needed some form of diversion as they're building this large civilization in the desert. And we quote Heber C. Kimball looking at the foundation saying, the rocks look of a very enduring character. And Heber <laughs> C. Kimball, if you know him, he's sort of a jester character. He is always saying something funny, sometimes not intentionally so. And then Brigham responds by saying, I always like to see some kind of a building going on. And I love that about Brigham Young there because... For him, activity, building up, creating something is something that is always good and useful and lovely. And I think it's a great image for our own lives. What are we building right now? Not what are we not doing, being lethargic, for example, or tearing down another person or an institution or the prophets, but what are we building that is of a positive character? So I really like that exchange between Brigham Young and his best friend, Heber C. Kimball. 
Uh, I think about the very first line in the book, which comes from Lucy Mack Smith, where she says, I want to speak about the dead. What I like about that line is when I first wrote the chapter, I, I sent it off to everybody on the writing committee and they were like, yeah, this is good. This is good. But, you know, this first scene, it's a meeting. It doesn't really grab us. This is just kind of a boring way to start the book. And I'm like, well, and I looked back at the sources and I saw that line. <laughs> I want to speak about the dead. And I was like, that's it. And so I tossed that in at the very beginning, sent it out to everyone. And the feedback was, was quite good. They're like, yes, this is exactly what we need. And I think it's very evocative, very provocative. It does capture what we're doing with Volume 2, same as Volume 1, and in many ways, Volume 3. We are speaking about the dead. These are people who have passed on, whose stories need to be told. And come to think of it, one of the big themes that we see in Volume 2 is the redemption of the dead. You know, we are redeeming the dead through temple work, and we see that happening in the book. But also, I think we're redeeming the dead in other ways as well. Sometimes I think we misunderstand the pioneers. We don't quite understand why they made the choices they did. Sometimes we judge them for some of the choices they made. And I think what we need to do as we read volume two is to read the book with charity, understand that these people made mistakes, but also understand and appreciate the great things that they did. Well, I think it's remarkable what you, Jed, and Scott have accomplished. I know you're building something great. I can see the foundation of volume three. I'm excited for that. And I just want to thank our listeners for joining us for this season of the Saints podcast. We've had a ton of fun. And we're glad that you've joined us for the episodes and invite you to watch for season three of Saints when volume three comes out. This truly has been such an incredible experience. We just thank you so much again for listening and coming on this journey with us. And we look forward to having you again for season three of Saints. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey signing off for season two of Saints, inviting you back for season three. Thanks for listening. Thank you.